0: Back in college, I had the the crazy idea that I would learn piano, and and I did for two years, and even played a song at my wedding, and then it and then I stopped. But but for two years, I I uh, spent learning the piano, and I remember what my piano teacher would do with me along the way. She would have me play a particular uh, a particular. Uh, uh, scales. She She would have me repeat a set of scales over and over and over. She'd have me learn just a few notes and she'd have me play them over and over and over. And once I got good at those, she'd then add another note. And then I'd play all of those over and over and over. And then after I got good there, what'd I do? She would add some new ones and then over and over and over. And any, any good teacher does this, no matter what they're teaching. They will, they will teach something, have the student repeat it over and over and over, and then once they get it, they'll then add a new layer to the teaching. And it just so happens that's what we're going to find today. There's going to be some familiar parts to our passage today. It's going to be like running those scales over and over and over on the piano. It's going to sound very familiar. But then Jesus, as a brilliant teacher, is going to add a layer that he has has not yet exposed in our passage today. And so that's what we want to do. We want to look at something familiar, and then today we add that new piece, which explains some of what's going to happen at the end of the Gospel of Mark that we haven't seen yet. So here we go. We're going to pick up. We're in the Gospel of Mark. We've been in this gospel for many, many weeks or months. And we now are in the latter part of chapter 10, and the story continues to pick up, and it continues to move us in one particular direction, and that's where we're going to pick up today. Verse 32, this is a scene change because we have Jesus on the move again. Verse 32, they were on their way up to Jerusalem when, with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. And again, he took the twelve aside and told them, What was going to happen to him? We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, Let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus again predicts his death. Now, if you've not been with us up to this point, this is the third time in the Gospel of Mark, third time that we have heard Jesus predict his death and resurrection. He does it in chapter 8, he does it again in chapter 9, and again here in chapter 10, he again predicts his death and resurrection. That's a lot of repetition. And he continues to repeat this so his disciples can understand. So I want us to see the familiar, that there's repetition in play here. Like any good teacher, he continues to repeat it. And this time he's on his way to Jerusalem. This is where the death will happen. Now what's interesting is that James and John, they come with a request right after this. They want to be part of all this greatness. They want to sit with him in glory. They want to be on his right and his left. Now, interestingly, Jesus has just said that he's going to die. And just not die, he's going to go be handed over to the Romans. And then they're going to mock and spit on him. They'll flog him. They'll kill him. And yet James and John still say they want to sit with him in his palace, in his castle. It seems to me they've missed something. Maybe they didn't hear it. One scholar explains what might be going on with James and John this way, and I think it's a really good explanation for us to understand why the disciples might have continued to miss the prediction. Take a look at what this one scholar says. James and John want to turn Jesus' messianic journey to Jerusalem into a march to glory, a glory in which they will sit on either side of him when he reigns as king. They've clearly heard all the language about suffering, death, and rising again, simply as a set of pictures, perhaps meaning it's going to be tough, but we're going to come out on top. So it seems that James and John actually don't hear, they actually don't hear that this will be a real mocking, a real flogging, a real death. Maybe Jesus is just using hyperbole. He's just exaggerating, just, so, just to say that it's going to be a tough road, but we're going to come out on top. But Jesus wants to correct this for them. He even says as much when he says, you don't understand what you're asking. Which, by the way, when we say this to our children or our adult children, it's just biblical. Like, when you tell them, you look at them and you say, you don't even know what you're asking. You know, when they ask silly requests, just so you know. So if you, any parents want to ever use it, like, okay, that was supposed to be a joke. Let's continue. (laughs) One out of two fail. I'm so sorry. Let's just continue. Uh, Tess has been through many of these failed jokes. It it, it has happened again. Let's continue. So basically, though, (laughs) I'm so sorry, I need to cut this from the recording, this whole section. um, I don't want people out in the world knowing I fail. okay? (laughs) Let's, uh, Let's pick up, though, where I failed in a joke. So they don't understand what they're asking. They don't understand that this is going to be a real flogging, a real death. And so Jesus is going to take this moment as a learning opportunity, as a teaching opportunity, to then now explore some dimensions of his death, of where he's going, with some language that he hasn't yet used. And that's where we want to dig, is the new section, the piece that he's going to expand out for us. And I think it's no surprise that Mark actually uses this section now to expand out in the third moment that we hear this. This will be the last time that Jesus teaches directly about his death and resurrection. So now we're going to get this expanded teaching on his death. And I want to move us to the end, kind of a summary statement. It's in verse 45. Here's what he says, verse 45. Just want to remind us, he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Very important, to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus here claims to be a servant, it's important for us, the readers, to understand this, that when Jesus, says, when Jesus says that he came to be a servant, he is hyperlinking this back to Isaiah 52 and 53. Let's just put that slide up just so we can just have everyone clear here. When Jesus says he came to be a servant, he's hyperlinking that, that statement, that claim to Isaiah 52 53. So he wants us and the disciples to hear Isaiah 52 and 53 when he says he's a servant. Take a look at just some excerpts from that passage, Isaiah 52 and 53. Here are some excerpts. This is this prophecy about this coming servant. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exhausted. I want you to hold that phrase, by the way. I want you to hold that lifted up and highly exhausted. Just hold it in the back of your mind. He was depressed and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we were healed. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, cause him to suffer. And the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. He will see his offering and prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. This is a prophecy. This is a promise that God will send someone. Isaiah here calls this person a servant who will take on the evil of the world, the sin of the people, and yet will come out on top. And Isaiah actually says, I'm glad we leave this slide up, he actually uh, predicts here the resurrection with this phrase, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Isaiah saw someone who would come and suffer on behalf of the people and yet come out on top. Now this this has inside of it a rich language of suffering. See, all the different ways here in this passage that we see suffering described. We see things like crushed, bearing iniquities, being punished. And what it tells us is that the way to life will not be some upward climb through the rungs of political power. It will actually move through the valley of suffering. Now, we've had a slide that we've put up regularly to picture this, to like imagine this journey. Let's put that one up. The path to King for Jesus, again, wasn't some upward walk through the halls of political power to a throne. It was through a valley of suffering, through a Roman cross, and that would be his coronation. That would be his victory. And so James and John are really having a hard time understanding this. We know the disciples are having a hard time understanding this. So why in the world walk through a valley of suffering? Why was that needed? Why not just march through the halls of political power, take your throne, and then remove the Roman oppressor? Like, why not use some military power? Why not drop some bombs? Well, one scholar says it this way. I think this is really important for us to get. He says it this way. God would send a son of Eve, this would be Jesus, to conquer evil by allowing evil to conquer him, and then overcoming its power of death by his love and eternal life. It's really important. Now, I've underlined here, I want to emphasize what this one scholar says, allowing evil to conquer him. Another way of saying that is that allowing evil to do its worst. So you know what happens when the sin of the world, like all your rebellion, all of, all of your wrong decisions, all of mine, and the literal evil. I mean, this think maybe demonic powers here. All the evil powers of the world descend on one person and destroy that person and then they win, well, that person's like Superman. Like nothing can touch that person now. But it's, it's the evil doing its worst. It's the sin of the world being placed on a person. It's, it's, it's when, it, when it conquers the person, that's the piece that has to happen. Evil has to be allowed to run its course and then be shown up for being weak. That's what needs to happen. But for that to happen means that someone's got to walk that journey and let evil do its worst. Someone's got to walk that journey so that evil can be beat. And that's going to be Jesus. And so what Jesus is going to do in this expanded teaching is he's going to take the language of being a servant, a suffering servant, and he's now going to put some other words around it to describe what he's about to experience. He's going to describe this valley of suffering, this allowing evil to do its worst, allowing evil to conquer him. So he's going to use a couple couple words here. He uses baptism and he uses this cup, this cup he will drink. So let's just remind ourselves of what he says to James and John. He says this, Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And so let's just take both those words and just see how important they are to describe what Jesus is going to experience. So this word baptism here is this idea of an immersion. So it's not like just dipping your toe in evil or just dipping your toe into suffering. It's a complete immersion. It's allowing evil to conquer him. That's the language here. Interestingly, in the Gospel of Luke, where we have a lot of Jesus' teachings also recorded, one time when he taught he was going to the cross, right after he taught that, you know what he said? He said this, Luke chapter 12, verse 50, he said, I have a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me. And I am under a heavy burden until it's accomplished. So what he does is when he predicts he's going to go into that valley, he's trying to help his disciples understand that this will be a deep immersion into the suffering for the world. And he will be a servant as he does it. So that's the language of baptism. And that's the way you get forgiveness of sins, is you get someone else that walks down that valley wins the battle, and then tells everyone else they can participate now in the victory. But it's an immersion into suffering. So this like weird language of a baptism, that's what Jesus is doing here. Then he also uses this language of a cup, like he's going to drink a cup. He says, I, you, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Now what in the world is he talking about? Like, I mean, what, what is he doing? Like, is, he, is it just any, any, any old cup? Is it just a cup of water? Like, what is this cup he's talking about? Here again, Jesus is hyperlinking to the Old Testament. He's using an image that draws from an Old Testament prophecy about judgment. Take a look at this. I want you to look at this prophecy out of Jeremiah. This is an uncomfortable one, so uh, we're just going to read through it. We need to accept this is in Scripture, but this is a tough one. Jeremiah chapter 25, 15 through 16, this is a prophecy against the evil of the people of God. Here's what he says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And when, you, and when they drink it, they will scatter and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. This cup is a cup of God's wrath. Now we need to be very careful here. This is not a God who is petty. The God of Israel is not fickle. Like He's not arbitrary. He's not just passing out judgment at at will, just however he feels on a particular morning. He's not like the Greek or the Roman gods that you could never predict. This is literally a people who have chose to rebel, and therefore they're being punished. So this is not fickle. But the language here is of wrath, and I don't want you to think of wrath as like someone being mean. I think sometimes we think of God's wrath as some arbitrary meanness. Like he's having a temper tantrum that's not what's happening here this is coordinated justice and so here it is a wine of judgment it's a cup of judgment it is drinking it is ingesting judgment really justice and so what jesus is saying here is that he has to drink a cup he has to ingest god's judgment on the evil of this world now we could call that punishment But that's not something we see, that's not a word we're seeing used in the New Testament. What we see here is that he is taking on, he is taking on, or he is ingesting judgment. And so he walks this valley of suffering, both by being immersed in all that evil offers, and also by taking on all the justice that God will will give out to evil. I don't know about you, but I, like, I want God to like, bring justice to evil. Like I'm looking forward to that day. That gives me hope that there is justice for evil. It just so happens that Jesus took on all that evil, all the sin, and he ingested all the justice. And he does that in his death. Now, interestingly, right, that when Jesus, the night before he goes to the cross, he's praying in what we call the Garden of Gethsemane. And you might remember he has a prayer. He prays to his father. He actually refers to this cup. Take a look, Mark. This is later in Mark. We'll get there one day. Mark chapter 14, really? A joke that's not supposed to be a joke and you laugh? I don't understand you people. (laughs) Mark chapter 14, verse 36. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So when we get to that passage... We need to understand that Jesus has already made reference to the cup, and he's already hyperlinked that back to Jeremiah and other passages in the Old Testament. What I want to see is that Jesus is using different languages and different words to describe the depth of his suffering. And so with that said, now that we got got like maybe the, the outline of how deep the suffering actually will go, it's like being immersed, it's like adjusting justice. He then comes to this phrase, which we really need to, to I think, get our hands around. This, this glory, this glory that he talks about. Remember that James and John said that they want to sit with him in his glory? Now, typically, when I think of someone being in their glory, I'm thinking about them being on a throne. I'm thinking about them being full of fame. They're being in the limelight. Like, that's what I'm thinking. And so James and John are thinking that, hey, we want to sit with you in your glory. Like, when you're on your throne, when we're kicking back and everything's okay, we want to be on your right and your left. In your glory. And Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking. It's actually not mine to give you to sit on my right and my left in my glory. Well, if Jesus has already put some words like baptism and the cup and this word servant, which hyperlinks to the suffering servant in Isaiah, if all of that refers to suffering, then this in glory part has to then have a link to the suffering, not to a posh throne room in some palace. I'm going to say it this way. Let me just say it in a summary. Jesus' glory would be revealed in his baptism of suffering and in drinking the cup of judgment, which happened when he was lifted up on the cross. Okay, I feel like I've already been a little nerdy this morning. have got a lot of content I'm throwing at you. I just want to go one step further get a little more nerdy. So if you remember in Isaiah... The first part of Isaiah 52, that prophecy says that I'm going to send my servant, he will be lifted up and highly exalted. That's the wording. Now, typically we think of someone being lifted up as exalted, that those are really the two two of the same things. That's like being inaugurated, that's being coronated, that's being made king. So that's when all the fame is coming to you when you're lifted up. The word there, so the Old Testament was actually translated into Greek, and the Greek word there for lifted up, it's a word Jesus uses. Interestingly, he doesn't use that Greek word to refer to a coronation in a castle or, again, some fancy throne room in Jerusalem. He uses that Greek word, lifted up, to refer to the cross. So interesting. I want you to look at two places in the Gospel of John where Jesus is most clear about this. Take a look. John 8, 28. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. When Jesus says here, lifted up, He's referring to being put up on the cross, not lifted up in a throne room in a palace in Jerusalem. He makes it even more clear, if we're not clear yet, John 12, 30 through 30, 31 through 33. He says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. That's Satan, by the way. And I, whom, uh, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then the gospel writer, John, makes sure we all understand what Jesus was saying. Verse 33. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. When Jesus uses that Greek word lifted up that is pulled right from Isaiah 52, it doesn't mean I'm going to be put up in a fancy throne room in Jerusalem with all the pomp and circumstances of, of, of the political order. He's talking about his death. Like like having his clothes taken off and a, a, you know, being whipped and flogged And Spit on, that's what we're talking about, and then actually put up on a cross. So let's make a summary. Let's just put a, like, summarize this this way. When Jesus was on the cross taking on the sin of evil and evil of the world, his glory was most fully on display. And you know who was seated on his right and his left? In his glory, criminals. I think sometimes when we think of Jesus in his glory, we think of, of light and we think of, you know, we carry images of fame and we think of fancy rooms in the White House maybe or, you know, castles somewhere in Europe. You want to know what Jesus' glory looked like? Let's just put an image to it. That's, that's when Jesus would be in his glory. It'd be three crosses on a hill. And so... When James and John come and say, Hey, I want to be seated on your right and your left in your glory, Jesus saw this image. This is not for him to give. Because it was always determined, it was already determined that the people sitting on his right and his left would be two criminals. They didn't even know what they were asking. That's something. All of that, all of that, all that nerdiness, all that content is right there in that passage from Jesus using the word servant to using the word baptism to using the image of a cup, all the way to talking about being in his glory. All of it is driving to the cross, and it's all backwards. This is not the way we think or operate in our world. Now, what I like about this passage is it gives us some justification for always having some application when we study the Bible. Because, actually... Jesus, here in this passage, actually makes application. Now, don't worry. We'll have some application to bring it into the 21st century. But right here in this moment, Jesus brings the expanded teaching, and you know what he does? He actually gives them application in that moment. So let's go with the first application. We don't need to move the slide yet. If you remember, Jesus says, hey, can you drink? Can you drink the cup? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And they say, we can. And then Jesus says, you will. You will. You're going to drink the cup, and you're going to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. And what he's telling them there is, the way I walk is the way you'll walk. Isn't that something? Now, there is another passage where he makes that clear. But just let's realize that in this moment, Jesus makes some application for their life. He takes what they've asked, and then he says, hey, by the way, this will be your life. And it would be James and John's life. Both of them would suffer greatly for the name of Jesus after Jesus has died and rose from the grave. You know, he does make some application very similar to this back in chapter 8. Let's remember where we were. Check out this application. It's the same thing he's doing in chapter 10. He just makes it more clear here. Again, this is direct application. And this has a little bit to do with us too. Mark 8, 34 through 35. Whoever wants to be my disciple... That's going to include them and you must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Isn't that something? That's completely backwards with the way the world works. The world says if you want, if you want, a, if you want happiness, you go get it. You want life, you go get it. You go get yours. And if someone messes with you, you make sure to take care of them. They'll get theirs. You go get what's yours. That's backwards to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God says if you want life, then you've got to give up your life for me. And then you will gain it. You have to actually go be crucified if you want to live. That makes no sense. Let's just be honest. It doesn't make any sense. That's backwards. That's like saying if you want for Jesus to be king, he had to go die. No wonder they didn't understand that. So that's application. That's application for their life. Hey, you're going to suffer the way I suffer. That's actually the way you have to walk if you want to find life. And then he makes another application. He says, hey, by the way, because of everything I've just taught you about this baptism, this cup, this this glory, and me being a servant, because of all of that, I I want to be very clear. You are not to be like the world. Do, you are not to be like the Gentiles, that is, those who are outside of God's realm. You are not to act like them. Listen to what he says. Just, just kind of a refresher here, just so we make sure we understand what Jesus says. Verse 42, 44, chapter 10, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. You are not to be like them. Instead whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. The, so that all that teaching about a baptism and immersion in suffering and a drinking the cup of judgment, all this talk about being a suffering servant walking to the cross, all this talk about being in glory which actually would be the crucifixion, all of that comes down to you being a servant like Jesus was. That's something now, the Apostle Paul will take this, and he'll put a little modern spin on it for, for the people he was writing to. So the Apostle Paul takes that teaching, and he says it this way, and my, this gets under my skin. Like, if you take this seriously, it should get under your skin. But it's the way to life. I'm just telling you, this one's hard. Philippians chapter 2, verse three and, uh, verses 3 and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Like, I feel like at this point, I just throw the Bible out. Like, I'm done. Really? Nothing out of selfish ambition? Nothing? Really? But that's like what the word means. Like, I feel like I've already failed. He keeps on, rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. You know, you and I have been well trained through commercials, advertisements, all kinds of things to think of who, first and foremost, You, you're number one. And yet here, Paul takes this teaching from Jesus, reworks it, and says, you think about other people first. Like, I feel like a failure. And and I am in this. That's why I need God's grace. But what an application. Now, let's take all of that. Let's take all that, even take Jesus' application. I just want to bring it in the 21st century and just do a quick review of some things that we might be able to do. All right, here it is. Here's some application for us to get down into real life. Following the way of the cross involves an intentional, strategic plan to stop some things. Stop some things. Yelling at home when mad. Looking at inappropriate images. Holding on to bitterness. Gossiping about people you don't like. And by the way, I think all of those things have some application today. You ever been mad and yelled at home? Yep. Yep. And don't, don't give that excuse that you were just trying to get their attention. No. You were, like, you were like full out angry. Like we might have been reaching rage. That's not a good place for a student of Jesus to be. It's not where we need to be in the kingdom. Let's, let's go with another. Let's continue the list. If that wasn't bad enough, here it is. Here's some other things we could stop. Buying things you can't afford to impress others. Listen, honestly, we rarely are conscious that we're trying to impress others. This this has a lot of deception inside of it. We're just trying to be like the people that we want to like us. But we have ways of doing this, and we do it a lot when we can't afford it. Overworking to to avoid time with family. Making sure you have the last word in an argument. Or beating yourself up. You know, beating yourself up can also be another form of pride. Or it's something that God needs to rework in you. Because you have such a low view of yourself that you no longer know how to love. And I'm just telling you, if that one, that one at the bottom of the list, which is a little different than the rest, you are valuable to God. Like, and he actually likes you. I know that I could say he loves you, but that, that gets used a lot. Like, he likes you. Like, he'd hang out with you. And so we don't understand that when we beat ourselves up, we're moving in the reverse direction of the kingdom of God. You don't need to beat yourself up. And anything you're carrying with you that, that is full of guilt and shame, that's... That's the grace of Jesus that covers things like that. Now, these are just, we just don't just stop things. There are things we need to start too, right? All right, let's go with this list. So following the way of the cross involves an intentional strategic plan to start helping those in need without strings attached, forgiving someone who has hurt you. That's not always easy, by the way. Sometimes, that's a long journey often. But you, you move in that direction. Being patient with people who annoy you. I just get tired of people talking about being patient with people that are easy to be patient with. You know people that are easy to get along with? That's fine. That's not the application here. It's the people you don't like and that annoy you. Those are the people that you come up with a plan on how to move in patience with them. Becoming friends. Another thing we can start is becoming friends with someone who isn't like you. And then let's go with this next slide. Another thing we could start doing is praying for our enemies. Can I just say a word here? We're moving into a political season, and one of the things you're going to notice is I'm not going to talk a lot about this it, 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 with, any, with any depth or content. What I am going to say is, is no matter if you're on the left or the right, you probably should pray for the person on the other side of the aisle. Because what happens in our political season, particularly a presidential election season, is often what we do is that we demonize the people on the other side. As if, if, if the other side gets elected, then we're doomed. And I want to be very, very clear. And I have the Bible to stand on here. so You can't say anything to me. Or well, you can, but I'm just going to tell you it's the Bible. America is not the hope of the world. Do you know that God is also working in China? Do you know that he's working in Saudi Arabia? Do you know he is in parts of Yemen that we don't even know how to pronounce? Do you know know that God is moving in all of those places? Now, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to move with moral fortitude and courage in how we vote and how we engage politically. And I believe God is doing amazing things in America. But we need to be very careful not to demonize a political candidate To make it sound like if they were elected, our life is ruined. Donald Trump will not ruin your life. And you know what? I'm going to go on a limb here and say, Joe Biden, I'm just going to assume he's going to be the candidate, Joe Biden's not going to ruin your life. The kingdom of God will stand. It was standing before 1776, and it will be standing, if if the world is around that long, after the fall of the United States. So I want to be very clear. Yes, engage politically. Yes, be fervent, particularly if that's something that interests you. But please, please do not create enemies and have your heart go into hatred for someone you don't even know. Let's pray for our enemies. All right? Now, I'm not going to say a lot on this as we move into the presidential election season, but this is a great place to sit there. Pray for your enemies. And in... And this time, uh, at this season, politics becomes a place where we hate people pretty quickly. So I'm just saying, pray for the people you don't like. All right. That was a test case to see what you're going to do with me now after I said that. All right. About to fall off the steps, too. Just all nervous about what I just said. Okay. All right. You also want to start spending time with family even when it's not efficient, or letting go of having the the last word in an argument, or being patient with yourself. And in all of that application, this is something you intentionally need to do. Like, you don't just, like, fall into this. You don't, like, accidentally stumble into being nice. Like, you have to, like, actually work at this. And so that's what we want to do. All right, let's go to a next step. Let's just bring this down to something you can do this week. Pick one way to follow the way of the cross one way. And then count on God to help you. Count on God to help you. I know we could talk a lot about what all this looks like, but you're actually going to have to do it. Kind of like a baseball player could talk a lot about what it looks like to pitch a ball, you know, or catch a grounder or hit a home run. It's another thing to get in the batter's box or stand on the pitching mound or stand stand in the infield and take a grounder. So what you want to do is like pick something, so if, like, you're a teenager and you have a tendency to talk back when you're tired in the morning, one of the things you could do tomorrow morning is don't talk in the morning. Like, wake up and don't talk. So that's your goal, and that's the way of the cross for you. Like, you're going to suffer by not allowing your anger because you're tired and have to go to school to come out of you, okay? You're just going you're gonna, to you're gonna just pin it up and just be quiet, all right? Now, if, if you're a parent with a teenager in here, Use that. Use that. Just tell them. Just tell them. The preacher said to be quiet. <laughs> yeah, and one of you will need to tell that to one of my teenagers. So we'll just we'll just swap. Okay. All right. But if like if if you have a tendency to gossip a lot, and you gossip with like one person in particular, because we all have the people we like to gossip with, then just don't talk to that person as much this week. Or just just keep your mouth quiet when your friend starts to go to that place of gossip. And it's going to get real awkward. It's going to be a form of suffering, but it's the way of the cross. And then you're just going to count on God to help you because you're going to often think, well, my friendship's going to fall apart if I don't do some more gossiping. Well, no, God will help you. Just come alongside. And I'm telling you, you're going to find God show up in ways that you wouldn't have expected, but you're going to have to do something with all of this. not just think about it. That's your next step. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the gospel of Mark and all the wisdom here. Thank you for Jesus that he was baptized in this immersion of suffering. He drank a cup of judgment. He was a suffering servant. And that he was in his glory on a Roman cross so that he could not only take care of evil and sin in the world, but he also could cut away for all humans to find life. So help us in ordinary life, in our kitchens, in our living rooms, in our bedrooms. Would you just help us to find life as we walk the way of the cross? We pray that in the name of him who suffered, died, and rose from the grave, Jesus the Christ. And together we say, Amen.